I'm recording this introduction a few days after Thanksgiving, and if you're listening to this when the episode comes out, it'll be roughly a week, maybe a week and a day or so after the Thanksgiving holiday, which is to say this is the holiday season. And between Thanksgiving and maybe some things that happen in between and the Christmas holiday, it is a season during which we sit down at a table with neighbors, with friends, with family, with people who share different ideas, hold different ideas about how the world works. Usually what we mean by that is they hold different religious or different political perspectives. And the rule, the cultural rule has become you don't talk about politics. You don't talk about religion at the dinner table and specifically during the holidays. I see story after story or anecdote after anecdote on most of my social media platforms about nightmare scenarios or nightmare fears of things happening during the holidays around politics and religion among family members and neighbors, etc. You don't talk about religion and politics during the holidays. And as much as I understand, and I really do, because I've certainly been in those scenarios in which a political or a religious conversation was problematic relationally, ah, it just really disappoints me and it saddens me. In fact, I find it a little bit boring and I long for conversations and places for conversation in which politics and religion are not just on the table, but welcomed, invited, where we can have real life differences about real life things that really do matter, which is why I was thrilled to sit down and talk with Keith Simon. Keith Simon is the co-author of a book called Truth Over Tribe, pledging allegiance to the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. He is the pastor of a church. He's a thoughtful and caring individual, and he's someone who, like me, is aware of his own biases, is aware of his own history, and is aware of the unfortunate and massive gap between far too many people who don't feel the capacity, the ability, or the willingness to share in some of the ideas that actually drive their lives. I enjoyed our conversation. I think you will too. Check it out. My name's Keith. You're Justin. That's what I've been told. Both things. I've been told yeah. both things. I've been told that your name is Keith. I've also been told that my name is Justin. And that's how I know. You're on a roll, baby. What are you doing for Thanksgiving, Justin? Um, we're probably going to end up hosting here. Well, I think... This, this is all last minute stuff. Uh, we've had some interesting family um, mm. shifts. Well, I was gonna say, when you said we're probably hosting here, I'm like, it's tomorrow, bro. But yeah, it sounds like- Yeah, there's a- Scenes. There's a flexibility factor when it comes to certain seasons. And uh, I think uh, I think we're gonna end up hosting here. It's been between um, hosting here and then, uh, or well, doing something with a cousin in in San Jose, which is what has been traditional, is going to San Jose with everybody. But oh, drive is that for you? That's like an hour. Okay, it's not too bad. Um, so yeah. I hear our video is not working, and I'm okay uh, with that if that doesn't. But I don't. I wouldn't. You. I probably wouldn't use the video anyways. Okay, they're working on it just to see if if they can bring it get it on. But I think we just do your plan, whatever you want to do. Sure. But yeah, we're just we're we're here. gonna chat over. Whoop! Looks like something's happened. If it happens, great. I'm not I'm not super focused on it. Um, yeah. Cool. Where am I talking to you from? Hey, there you are. What's up? I'm here now. Good okay, great. <laughs> um, I'm in Columbia, Missouri. Uh, so right between St. Louis and Kansas City, where the university is. So smack dab in the middle of the country. It's called flyover country for people like you. Yes. <laughs> for people <laughs> like me. Got it. The elites from the West Coast. Um, I love it. The do, left coast. There it is. Are you born and raised there? Where are you from from? Pretty much. Oh, really? I, I, I haven't. Uh, I've lived in Chicago for about four years uh, when I went to grad school. Uh, but uh, that's pretty much it. Lived in Ann Arbor, Michigan for a year. But I spent yeah. most of my life close by. Yeah. So it's boring. Um, the, your, uh, like where specifically though? Well, like, like what town were you in? Oh, me? Uh, I, I was uh, born in St. Louis, grew up mostly in Jefferson city and lived most of my adult life in Columbia. So all within the state of Missouri. But like I said, in Chicago and Ann Arbor for a little bit. 
of the places you've been and are, is there a place that feels like home? Like, where, what town are you in now? Columbia, Missouri. Uh, so this is where I live. We started a church here 22 years ago. Yeah. And so this is home. And when you say the word home for you, like how big a role does that play? I mean, the the book uh, the book is about ultimately, and in some sense, about relationships, about like a sense of connectedness with the people you have around, and how you kind of live out relationship with people, and so a sense of belonging. Do, how, how has where you've lived informed how you see the world of political engagement? Is there a history there for you? Were you politically active as a kid? What was home like? Was, was politics part of your world growing up? How did that play out? Yeah, they were. Um, I grew up in a home where my parents were very involved in politics. They were probably the most powerful couple, not the most powerful individual, but the most powerful couple in Missouri state politics. So I grew up in a home where we would have legislators, judges, all kinds of people, governors in and out of our house. Yeah. And I uh, didn't think that much of it at the time, but looking back on it, I learned a lot from that experience. Uh, and now I live in a politically diverse town. And yeah. so we have a politically diverse church. I live. I, I put into the New York Times a uh, little program they had about you could put in your address and see uh, the thousand people around you. W what are they registered? Which party are they registered with? And I came out 50-50. Right around me is 50% Republican, 50% Democrat. Wow. So I am shaped by both my uh, family life and currently where I am. Yeah. Um, when So in your town where you are now, in conversation – um, when you talk about um, how, how does I, want, I want to come to this question in a, a particular way, do you? How important is it for you to be familiar enough with your own your own leanings? Like in other words, you look at there's like the fifty fifty thing and what people tend to. Do, I shouldn't say what people tend, tend to do. What I have tended to do or value or experience in conversation is this: um, the value is centricity or, or centrality. That like what we'll what we'll say is like, well, it's, I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh, and it happens in conversation all the time. And when and no one, for the most part, very few people want to identify themselves in the extremes. And yet, um, very few of us really are in the middle middle. When it, like like we're, there is a spectrum of uh, of you know political engagement conversation. How important has it been for you to to come to grips with like your own leanings, whether whether that's partisanship or. You know, social politics versus fiscal responsibility and politics. How, how, how vital has that been for you in this process? Well, I, I think self-awareness is a gift yeah. that, uh, I, I hope, I, I hope I'm accurate. I hope I'm self-aware enough to realize <laughs> that I'm fairly self-aware. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know what I mean? I mean yes. Maybe yeah, I'm not. Me but meta self-awareness. I'm aware of my awareness <laughs> and also of my unawareness. I, I think so. Uh, so I said when I grew up in a very politically involved family, one of the things I learned from that is that uh, there were good people on both sides. Uh, my parents were on the left uh, politically, and they uh, treated everyone fairly. They, they would have people who had voted against the bills they were pushing through in the house for a dinner or a party, and they were treated respectfully. Now, they disagreed, and they might argue over something, but I never saw politics as being kind of the personal destruction. It was more about ideas. And so that shaped me as a kid growing up. Uh, but then, you know, I'm, I'm a recovering tribalist. I, I grew up in a family that leaned more left, but I was given the freedom to have whatever view I wanted, but you had to be able to defend it at the dinner table. Yeah. And so I, because I just a contrarian personality, see, I'm self-aware enough to know I'm a bit contrarian, ended up a person a little bit more on the right. And I, I bought in to the idea, and I'm embarrassed to say this just to be frank with you, although it's, it's good and humbling for me. I bought into the idea that if Republicans won control of the United States House of Representatives, this is back in the early 90s, that the world would get better. Yes. And so when they when the election returns came in and they had won, I was sitting out in the backyard of a friend with a friend of mine watching it. I run around the backyard taking my shirt off and swinging <laughs> it in the air, whooping and hollering. And there was not even any alcohol involved. Yeah. I, and part of me was just being goofy and being yeah. silly. Right. But part of me really believed, OK, the world's going to get better. And mm -hmm. that was a. a 
says something bad about how naive I was, because of course that doesn't happen. And also it just showed me where my faith was, that my faith wasn't in uh, Jesus or his kingdom. My faith was in uh, a president or a political agenda or a political party. And I've had to kind of come to grips that I'm just as prone to tribalism and uh, groupthink as anyone, you know, to get one of my priors to be confirmed as anyone is. Um, the, that thrill of like the world is that the things are going to get better. That really is sort of the, the, uh, the energy or the, the hope in political discourse. Uh, maybe not discourse, but it is, it is sort of the hope in, at least in campaign seasons, right? Is like, <laughs> if we make this move, if we make these decisions, if this bill gets passed, if this measure gets approved, if this, that things will change, it does tap into, um, I guess this, I'll make more of a question. There is a um, talk about for you the relationship because you're a pastor and a leader of people in a in a religious setting, right? The political, um, uh, like a political campaign or the hope of politics does I think at least try to tap into that same hope with which people come to religious oh. movement or even personal development and growth. That like if if you x then y can you talk about like yeah that moment where you're running around the backyard shirtless <laughs> um we'll just we'll just come back to the image a lot during the interview <laughs> you're, but you're running around you're thrilled there's that there is uh, i mean i i shared a moment i'll share that moment with you in terms of the 2000 2008 campaign my mom and i worked on uh on the the obama campaign uh-huh. um and I, I mean, it was it was a peak experience, like emotionally, it, you know, the election results come in and I'm in Los Angeles with a group of people who are also working on the campaign. My mom's in Northern California, where we're from. We're on the phone mm-hmm. in tears having mm-hmm. that like change. And, and it wasn't just like our guy won. It mm-hmm. really was. This is a moment where think, things are, things are changing. There was a hope for the future. Talk about if you can, and however you want to, your personal history with that kind of like hope for a better future as a pastor and a, and a leader of people religiously, versus or in conjunction with being a person who's aware of your uh, of politics and the and the world of politics and the hope for change that that promises. Yeah, I think it's a lot of good stuff there, Justin. I, I think we as human beings crave a, a better world. I think we crave, even if we see it really differently, a more just world, a more fair world. We crave a utopian kind of vision that we want to be established. And that will look different depending on who you talk to. But we all know something's wrong with our world. I mean, you can't help but look around and see violence, uh, to see injustice, huge disparities in wealth. Um, the war in Ukraine. I mean, there, there's just so many obvious things that we all know there's a problem going on and we all want those problems to be solved. Yeah. And I think that the politics taps into that same desire that faith does, that religion does, that Christianity does. Mm-hmm. And that's one reason, I mean, people smarter than me have said that when you see uh, religion diminished, you'll see uh, people put more into politics. Because yeah. we have to put that craving, that desire, that passion for a better world somewhere. And if we're not going to put our hope in God and you know, maybe a kingdom he brings, then we're going to end up putting it in uh, a political party or a president, like we said, a political platform, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, it, it touches the same thing. Now, I, I want to say that um, politics are really important because we work toward a more just world through the political system. I mean, if we, yeah. sometimes I think we can just get discouraged and say, politics are dumb, uh, let's just avoid it and yeah. give up on it. And I, I think that's a mistake. I mean, just go back into the civil rights movement in the 1960s. There was a lot of good, healthy change that came about through politics. So yeah. politics is a way that we can love our neighbor, right? And so we should mm-hmm. care about it. I, I just think we've given it uh, too high of a place in our life. We've made it preeminent when it doesn't, mm-hmm deserve that. And we've looked for politics to do something that it can't do. We've put our hope in people. Uh, they just can't deliver on it. It's not that yeah. they're bad people. They just can't do all that we hope and expect them to. Absolutely. 
So you, you don't necessarily draw a hard line between um, uh, you. You're comfortable with maybe the overlap there. That like that's part of how a person lives out their religious faith or their their, their religious longings. Even like a like a kingdom vision, of the world is by political engagement. Some folks really like to divide the two things. We don't talk about this. These two things can't touch. Like weird kind of third rail. Don't touch that. You're a little bit more comfortable with like, no, this is actually an aspect to how you play out your life uh, as a person of faith is in the religious realm or in the political realm. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at some people in the Bible and I look at somebody like a Daniel who rose to have this uh, really high position both in the Babylonian and in the Persian kingdom. Or you think of Joseph rising to a position of leadership in Egypt, and there are some other examples of this well, Nehemiah, Esther. But these are people who are commended for their work within messy government systems. You know, these Egypt, yeah. uh, Babylon, Persia, they're not Christian kingdoms. And yet here are these people who are uh, held up as honorable people in the Bible who are invested in them. And I think that that is a model for how we are to approach politics and uh, the, the kingdom. I mean, Jesus has a politic, I think, because we, we think of politics and we're confusing it with partisanship. There you go. Politics is not partisanship, right? Mm -hmm. But politics is just how are we going to live our life together? What are our values going to be? How are we going to uh, treat people who do things that are wrong in eyes of society, like criminal justice? How are we going to care for people? How are we going to resolve conflict? Politic is something that Jesus has, but he's not partisan. So Jesus is political, but not partisan, I think is a really helpful distinction. So when we pray and uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? We pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what we're praying is, is that Jesus's kingdom ethic would be lived out here. And that uh, uh, when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, what do we see? We see kingdom ethic. Now, I don't want to minimize or reduce all that the Bible has to say about ethics and politic uh, to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's a really good place to start. Yeah. And Jesus's kingdom is a kingdom of love, justice, and mercy. So I think we should be working as Christians toward that. Now, one problem, I think, is that we narrow politics down to what happens between Republicans and Democrats. But politic, mm. Jesus's politic, is also uh, something that churches or community groups do or neighborhoods do. It's a way to love your neighbor and serve people who need help and be a light to a world and to govern justly. That's all part of, I think, what God has called us to do. Talk a little bit more, when you talk about partisanship, um, is partisanship a thing that is avoidable? Like, what does one do with, you know, we talked about self-awareness for a moment. One of the, you know, one of the moments folks will have if, if you, you know, maybe have like a a, like a loving awakening to like, okay, wait, I'm, I'm not, I'm not doing this well. I've lost more friends than I've gained. I'm changing no <laughs> one's mind. This is everyone's experience by the way right now. I've Absolutely. changed no one's mind. I've lost lots of friends. Uh -huh. I feel isolated. I don't have any hope anymore. Um, I feel like I'm supposed to wear the sticker cause I go vote, but I don't really feel like someone has that awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if anyone would necessarily disagree with the – well, very few people would disagree with, with the notion that partisanship is problematic. Um, what does one do with one's partisanship? Like what is, – is, is it avoidable? Is it a matter of like you, you know, just become unpartisan? What does one do with the recognition of like I'm a hardcore right-leaning you know, right person and if Ben Shapiro says it, then I believe it and I, I know that now. Um, what does one do with one's partisanship? Yeah, I, I think it's a good question. So um, first, let's say this, that partisanship gets us to focus on the horse race of who's winning or who's losing. That's different mm. than working toward justice, than working toward uh, uh, God's values and uh, 
just values implemented in our society. The horse race of politics, which is what partisanship leads to, is saying, is my team winning? Are we owning the libs? Are we owning the conservatives? Hmm. You know, did we have this snarky tweet or the good comeback? <laughs> did we win this election? And and that's what partisanship does, is it causes us to look at Twitter or the news and to feel good about ourselves if our team had a good day and to feel discouraged if the other team had a better day than we did. Now, I, I think that's a problem. Um, that attitude is a problem. But what I don't think is a problem is saying, hey, I align, my values align more with the left or the right, Democrats or Republicans, or maybe even a different party that we haven't mentioned. I don't think that is itself is problematic. It becomes a problem when those people capture your whole worldview. So hmm. now, I can't really criticize my party right. because I can't show weakness. I can't, you know, ever speak truth to my party. I can't disagree. There can be no separation. And then I start to look down at the other people as the others, the bads, you know, yeah. the baddies. And I start to demonize them. I start to make up stories about how they aren't as good as we are. They're they're yeah. not just wrong. They're wicked. Uh, yes. You know. And, and that's a big line that is crossed and partisanship pulls us across that line where we begin to see people and tell, tell ourselves stories about them that are just that are that are untrue and unhelpful because it's hard to build bridges to wicked people. But <laughs> yes. you persuade you're wrong. To defeat, you're you defeat wicked people. Right. Yeah. And and so quick little story. Go for it. Uh, Back in, I think it's the 50s, I'm almost positive it's the 50s, there's a experiment this psychologist did and his team did uh, in Robbers Cave, uh, Oklahoma. That's the name of the state park where it took place. And they took two groups of fifth grade boys, very, very similar demographics, everything similar about these boys. They should be friends, uh, but they won't become friends here. They're on two different teams. And they don't even know that each the other team's there for a while. They're just playing games, doing stuff. And then they say to the each group, they say, hey, there's another group of fifth grade boys here. Do you want some competition? And the boys are like, yeah, we're, so the, the boys name themselves the Rattlers and the Eagles. I mean, you got to love fifth grade boys, right? And they start <laughs> making stories about the other people and they do these competitions and the counselors at the camp are all research assistants and they're just trying to keep the competition close so that the pressure stays on. And what happens is, this is so interesting to me, is that the boys start making up stories about how the other team are bad people. So one of them had a pool and the water felt colder one day. And they said, well, the other team, they came in and put ice in our pool. Well, no such thing had happened. Right. Or there was some litter and trash around one of the team's lakes. And they said, yeah, the other team came in and they had a party here and they left this trash. Well, mm. they had forgotten that they left the trash there from their own party the day before. Mm. So what they do is they start creating stories about how they're the good guys and the other people are the bad guys. Now, here's the deal. If that happens between fifth grade boys where it's just like a trophy on the line, how much more are those kinds of things going to happen when there really are big issues at stake? And so I think what partisanship does is it causes us to uh, uh, value winning more than collaborating, and it causes us to make up stories about the other team that makes them the kind of people that, like you said, you want to defeat, not not work with. Yeah. A lot of this plays into a thing you tapped into a few moments ago uh, when you, you, you talked about ideas. You were at the table as mm -hmm. a kid. There are people mm -hmm. who are voting on bills that they don't, they don't they're going to vote this through. They're not completely in alignment with it. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me, um, it more than seems to me, uh, but I'll say it that way. Uh, <laughs> it seems to me that um, the, the, the public, con uh, the tendency in public conversation around politics and partisanship um, is, is really complicated and even stuck in the mud because there's such an over-identification with one's ideas. And that's not just – it's not just you because I, I get that. To some degree, we live our lives so much now on a four-inch screen. Like you see people's – you know, they project their ideas. So you – you know, not that it's a good thing. But you are your ideas if you're over there. But even that I am my ideas, there's this like 
like over identification with my that I am the idea or I am the ideas or I'm made up of the ideas that I you know that I possess that and and well come back to that in a moment and we'll talk about like the fact that everything seems to be on fire right now um but talk a little bit about like about identity in in this context that um when we talk about you know truth over tribe one of the things you get to in through a few different doorways in, in the book has to do with like knowing who you are as a person so that you're not caught up by and lost in the ideas of your tribe um talk talk about like whether your personal history or or how you've seen this play out talk about the role of identity and and not over identifying with the things that i think in my head like what's that look like for you Speak to that for a moment. Yeah, so there's a guy named Robert Putnam, who's a sociologist, and he wrote a book several years ago called Bowling Alone. And it's kind of a one of those books that has made the circuit and people refer back to because it was so influential. And what he was noticing was that the kind of kind of connections that people were making in communities were thinning out. Things like PTAs or uh, Kiwanis clubs or all those local organizations, Little League softball that you that you don't pay much attention to are really important in our society. And they give us kind of a, 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 a cross-pollination of relationships. You're around different kinds of people in your community. And it allows you to say, who am I? Well, maybe I'm a Christian. I, I have a family. I belong to these groups and these organizations. I live in this town. I know these people were friends. And, and he was noticing that people were bowling alone now. In other words, we were doing things that we used to do together, but now we were doing them on our own. And the more atomized, you know, A-T-O-M, the more disjointed we become, the more alone we become, the more we seek our identity online or we seek our identity in a, pol- a national political party. And, um, you know, COVID and all the lockdowns, it sure didn't help that because it, it it hurt and damaged, maybe even destroyed in some places, a lot of those local community relationships. But now you're right. I've got to have my identity in something. And so where is my identity? And for so many people, their identity has become wrapped up in partisan politics. And... Um, here's what happens is you have a really hard time saying, I don't know. Hmm. I was wrong. I changed my mind on that. I don't agree with my tribe on these issues. And and people just don't want to say that anymore and rationalize. We come up with the craziest rationalizations. Um, So like, I mean, here's a, a, a thing. Remember, back when Bill Clinton was president and he had this adulterous relationship, inappropriate relationship with the intern. And a lot of Christian conservatives were saying he should resign. He set a horrible precedent for children. This is, you know, outrageous and immoral. And I don't necessarily disagree with them. It was outrageous and immoral. It was wrong. And if Me Too movement been around then, he would have been run out on the rails, right? But those same people, when when the, their candidate, the former President Trump, when their candidate was involved in, you know, immorality and crass behavior and setting a bad example for all of a sudden it was OK. Well, James Dobson said, well, he's a baby Christian. He's growing. And Robert Jeffress, the pastor in First Baptist in Dallas, he said, well, uh, you know, I, I, I had criticized him before, but now uh, I, I'm not looking for a pastor. I'm looking for a president and I want one tough SOB. Yeah. Well, what happened? What happened? Why did Albert Moeller, president of one of the largest seminaries in the nation, go from saying, I'll never vote for Trump because of his character to all of a sudden I will? Yeah. Well, it's because it's because our identity has blinded us so that we can't see things accurately anymore. We, yes. We're rationalizing. We're making excuses. We're justifying and I'm afraid that when Christians do that, we're just compromising our faith and what we're really showing people. I don't know if this is true. I don't know if it's what anybody intends. But the way it comes across is to the watching world is that you don't really care about truth. What you just care about is power. And you're willing to compromise whatever you need to in order to gain power. And I, again, I hope that's not true. But I, I don't blame anybody if that's the conclusion they come to. Um. With I'll stick with this theme for a moment and talk about uh, ideas and and full humanity. One of you know y- you and I both 
rooted in the Christian tradition, one of the things that gets lost among people of our broad tribe and the the the, the multi-tribal tribe of uh, of Christianity mm-hmm. is the incarnation of Jesus is the part of the gift and the teaching that just simply comes along with God incarnate is mm-hmm. exactly that full humanity is more complex than ideas that's one mm-hmm. of the, it's you know the trinity as an as an idea is wildly complex and very difficult to represent as an as an idea it's odd but as an embodied reality the, the the incarnation of Jesus invites this or challenges this notion that you are your ideas like you're you're way more than your ideas you have to mm-hmm. be way more than your ideas in the last many years i mean i i i'm a bit of an idealist in 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 some ways or was uh, for a long time myself and so i like i love the world of ideas i value my i i value and i want to value my relationships more um we are we have been and definitely are in a season in which if you and i are on the other side of a very important idea we can't have a relationship exactly right um are there though are there ideas causes that are worth sacrificing a relationship in other words like are, are is there is there a short list of like we can disagree about everything but if you cross this line then we can't have a relationship are there ideas that are more important than relationship and community or is is it like are we always wrong for sacrificing one for the other well let's figure this out together um so let's start with this, and it's kind of where you were that we don't really have um, a, a good model right now of how to have relationships with people you disagree with. Yeah. And in the book, we tell a story about a good friend who went to her husband's family reunion. Now, this is back in 2016. I don't know about you, Justin, but I avoid family reunions like the plague. <laughs> <laughs> if I haven't seen you in 20 years, there's a reason oh, that, wow. I, that okay. I have. They don't want to. Uh, no. Right. But she goes with her husband to, to her husband's yeah. family reunion. Now, I will admit that if you go to your spouse's family reunion, that's a little bit better because if everybody's crazy, you can say, well, if our kids are crazy, we know where they got it. They got it from your side of the family. Right. There you right. go. But, but here they are. People have come from all over the country and they're spending time, like over 100 people at this park. And all of a sudden, somebody mentions wanting to vote for Trump. This is back in 2016. And somebody else who maybe had a few too many beers said, they were a never Trumper. They get into an argument. Now, in the old world, that would have just kind of gone away before the family regathered at the next family reunion. But in the world of Facebook, uh, that's where family reunion arguments can go nuclear. So they just continued to argue over Facebook. This led to this family, uh, divided by politics, to, to start boycotting each other's weddings. One uh, young father got an aggressive form of brain cancer and died from it. And the people on the other side of the political divide wouldn't go to his funeral. And so you're like, hang on a second now. This is over President Trump. Now, I get he was a polarizing figure and, and, you know, people can have their opinions and I can respect people with a variety of opinions on President Trump. But I don't understand boycotting weddings and funerals over it. But you're saying then, okay, is there, though, a line where you would do that? Like if someone or should. were uh, well, like this thing of, is so important that you can't, you just you, we're not allowed to disagree about this. Yeah, in my world and in my world, for myself, the answer is no. If I like you and I I I want a relationship with you and I find out that you are a clan member, uh, I, I'm going to take that into account. I'm going to speak truth to you, I, but but I'm not going to cut you off because I found that out. Do you know the story of Daryl Davis? He he's a black man who played piano, jazz piano, I think no blues, and he uh, started befriending Klan members, started going to Klan rallies. So you see these. Is pictures this the one of, they made the movie about? Uh, I think it was a documentary. I, sure. I'm not a movie guy, but probably, uh, and it was something I'm sure has been made of it. He was on NPR. I heard him, and he's just started building bridges and friendships to Klan's members, and they would give him when they when they left the Klan, they gave him their robe. And he has a closet full of robes of ex-Klan members. Well, how did that happen? How did people change? They changed through relationship. Yep. They weren't going to be changed by pre- being preached at. So when you say, I'm going to cut you off because of what you believe, I, I don't think that ends where you want it to end. Hmm. I, I don't think that ends with that person changing and growing. And 
if you were in the other shoe, you know, if the other shoe was on your foot, if you were the person who had the belief that was frowned upon, looked down upon, disdained, would you want people to cut you off? So then I just go back to, are we sure we want to do to others what we hope they don't do to us? Yeah. So no, I, I, I understand that people are going to disagree. That's fine. I would not cut you off if I had a relationship with you and um, found out you were um, held some beliefs that were very much against mine. I, I it, is, it, it is the place I land in so far as um, I don't know. I mean, this might have been true as when I was younger. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure it was. Uh, that I. I. I don't know if I've, if I've ever honestly made a significant life change because I was so enamored with or moved by a pure raw idea. It's almost always been a matter of relationship. And mm-hmm. we, you know, so much so that in early, in early development, we warn kids against peer pressure. Mm-hmm. Don't become like your friends. <laughs> Part of what we mean by that though is like, you're going to become like your friends. Don't become like those friends. We'd like you to become like these friends. Right. Like we're moved and shaped by the environment around us. We're moved and shaped by relationship. The, if I truly do hope for, like you and I, let's, let's say you and I both had the same clan friend. Mm. <laughs> clan buddy. It's clan Kevin. Uh, <laughs> so clan Kevin, my, I can't imagine, especially in today's, in today's world, I can't believe I just said that, but especially the way the world works socially now, I can't imagine a scenario in which I would be able to present Kevin with a set of ideas and an argument, a paper, a book, uh, like uh, like some sort of like that would convince him by sheer force of argumentation, right? That being a clan member is wrong. Like I, it literally never happens. Like it never happens. Someone like reads the article on Facebook and goes, "Oh, oh my gosh, I get it now." <laughs> I will You're... stop being a racist jerk. Like uh-huh. it doesn't happen. It happens in a relationship where like these things that I feel and believe in me that I've identified personally, I'm willing to trade or change because I'm so actually in love with you. I mean, this is ha- this is what happens in a relationship with Christ is it's not the idea of Christ, it's the love and the compassion of Christ that changes the human heart. Um yeah. we have to then be in a relationship with folks who disagree with us so does that not not make it to some degree at least in this context a kind of mission directive for the people of christ to intentionally be in relationship with folks that they disagree with oh so a couple stories here is that and and here's the label i would put on what you're saying and i'm not the first person to use it but I, i i completely agree with it is that the way change happens is we belong and then we believe yes and, and the way we kind of think it happens uh, is that you believe and then you belong, right? Yeah. You read the article and you go, oh, or you hear the lecture and the lights come on and then you join the group. But that's not the way it happens. You join the group and you belong to this community. And then over time, your beliefs changed. And I heard that, uh, at least an example of that on um, another podcast, Michelle Goldberg, who's a very liberal New York Times columnist, was talking about how uh, she had been reading up and doing some research into the anti-abortion movement. And she was wondering why young women in their 20s were pro, pro-life when she is so stridently pro-choice. Mm-hmm. And what she was learning is that some of these people who were pro-life that kind of didn't fit what she expected a pro-life person to be like, they had formed uh, relationships with other pro-life people. They'd even gone to like the March on Washington, unsure of their convictions, but through those relationships and then learning, I mean, it does take truth. It does take the ideas have to come into that. Then they became pro-life. So first they belonged to a community that the people were mostly pro-life and then they adopted those views over time. Uh, so I think that's working. So, so can I share a Bible story about it that Go for it. sticks to me? So there's a story in the Gospels uh, where Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and two of his disciples, James and John, are with him, and they come upon this Samaritan village. Now, the rivalry between the Samaritans and the Jews were intense, and the Samaritans would not let this group of Jews, of Jesus and his, and his disciples, stop and stay there. 
And so James and John look at Jesus and say, hey, should we napalm this village? You know, should we call down fire on them? Which is kind of weird when you think about asking the Prince of Peace if you should blow up this village, but, you know, whatever. (laughs) But they they had totally misunderstand what Jesus was doing. They thought Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem to defeat the Romans. Instead, he was going to go to Jerusalem to die for the Romans and the Samaritans. So... What happens is that that Jesus rebukes them and says, no, we're not going to blow up this village. He goes to Jerusalem. He dies. uh, He's resurrected. And not long afterwards, Jesus is kind of drawing Samaritans to himself. In other words, Samaritans are becoming followers of Jesus. Now, think about this. James and John had wanted to kill the Samaritans, but after Jesus' resurrection, they're going to the same church service with these Samaritans. Yeah, that's crazy, right? We wanted to kill you, but now we're worshiping the same God as you. And and why did they want to kill them? Well, they didn't know any Samaritans. They 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 knew a lot about Samaritans, but they didn't know any. And so they were able to concoct these stories about how Samaritans are real bad people and we should judge them. And and I'm afraid we fall into the same trap yes. that we don't know people who voted for the other candidate. Uh, we live in bubbles. We practice social media bubbles. We 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 watch cable news or traditional media bubbles. We only know people like ourselves. We make up stories about people who are who who vote differently than us. We think they're bad people, and we don't realize that Trump supporter that you can't stand. He volunteers at the homeless shelter, and that progressive that you think is a socialist radical is the one who brought your family a meal when you had a baby. That. that we just have a lot more in common. These people aren't all bad people. They might disagree with you, and maybe they are wrong, but again, they're not wicked. And and so I think there's a sense in which that's where the church has a real opportunity because the church should be diverse. It should have people of different generations and people of different races and people of uh, who voted different ways. And, and they could find that they have something in Jesus that's greater than what divides them in the culture. One of the tricks to that relational, uh, you know, young life we call it incarnational ministry, and other mm-hmm. people call it different things, sure. um, is once you're in relationship, the risk you take is that you too will be changed. And that's part <laughs> that, that, that is, again, the sort of the odd corruptive fear that if I'm in relationship, you know, if, 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 you, hang, if you hang out with girls who smoke, you might end up <laughs> a smoker and apparently maybe end up a girl now. But uh <laughs> but that like the the but the risk that we take and I love that you got to it just now through that doorway and you like can I tell a bible story I think it's so important the risk that we take is the risk that you have to take is you you will be changed uh-huh. because you're not trying to win people to your set of ideas you're not trying to win people to your rightness you're trying to discover the activity and the movement of the spirit of Christ in the world and you don't have a corner on that market that's right. It's Philip arriving. It, it's Philip arriving at the eunuch's chariot, and listening uh-huh. first, and then getting in and having a conversation in which both of them were transformed and changed. At the end of that story in Acts eight, like they're both different people. Mm-hmm. That's actual. That's actual mission. Um, talk a little bit about. I, I want to come back around to um, like the cultural dominance. Or, or like dominant culture in the context of of evangelicalism and republicanism. I want to get into that a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit about you know, I, I know you, like I'm on my computer. I talked earlier about like most of our relationship communally happens on a four inch screen or seventeen inch screen, depending on how big your phone is nowadays. But like, how effective or destructive is? Uh, uh, no, I'll say it in a positive way. Is it possible? to have healthy, transformative dialogue and relationship online? Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, is it possible? Or is or are relationships over online platforms naturally and formatively destructive? Is it, a, is it that binary? Is it a matter of how you use it? How do you see the interaction online? Because like, what is it? It's something along like 86% now of human interaction in America happens via telephone or computer. Like that's the overwhelming majority of our lives. Is it just destructive? Is it possible to do that well? What's your thought? Well, I I, I think that if it's not possible, we are really screwed. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, not only is everybody 
having their conversation there. But but those well those conversations are getting worse and worse in my mind. And we all know that the social media companies are incentivized to keep you anxious, fearful, and angry because it's those emotions that keep you on their platform. And mm-hmm. so there's a profit motive in that. And and we know those stories and they're they're real. They're true. Um, the the most positive stories I know are from real life interaction. So like for example. Uh, Patrick and I, who wrote our book together, we uh, didn't take any money from this book. It all goes back into our church. And one thing we did is we took some uh, money and we from the book and we bought gift cards for people in our church to a coffee shop, a local coffee shop. And we just said, hey, go out and find someone that you disagree with or that you're different than and sit down with them over a coffee. You buy the coffee. Here's the gift card and ask them questions about them. Why do they believe what they do? It's not a time to lecture. It's time to listen. And there were some really good stories that came out of that. And there are other examples of that, but all those are in person. And I I know that's not your, your question is, can we do that online? And I'm not aware of many spaces where that's happening. I'm sure we can come up with some anecdotal things of here and there, but I'm not aware of it. So I don't know. I don't want to be hopeless about it because I don't think that gets us anywhere, but I don't see any signs for hope. Do you? Do you know of anything positive and constructive happening out there? I see small corners. Uh, I see moments. And and this is part of, like, I have this conversation with most of my guests um, Mm. because so much of our life happens online. Um, And and part of why I I have the conversation with people uh, is because I want to provide as best I can um, on my podcast like here's a person who is doing this well or or seeing it done well because i mean there like there isn't a leadership course on like how to lead how to how to be a faithful christ-like leader online there aren't like there aren't like oodles and oodles of books and leadership courses because of their because it's such a weird and we tend to again live at arm's length from the thing that we're like actually living in so i, I see little bits and pieces here and there on the whole it's a really sad, difficult, cold place to try to have important conversations at all. Well, yes. I mean, yes, we started our podcast Truth Over Tribe and wrote this book because we um, wanted to model that how to have those kinds of conversations, especially in the podcast with people that you disagree with. Um, But what you find is that those kind of conversations while you wish that everybody wanted to hear that and, and, and learn from that and listen to people who differ than them, disagree with them, the, the ones who get better ratings or better sales yeah. are the ones who are more uh, strident, yes. more uh, have strong opinions of I'm right and you're wrong. And I, I think that is d- discouraging to a lot of people yeah. because it doesn't, it doesn't say that there's a market out there for people who want, who, who I would call, and I think others have called the, the exhausted majority, yes. right? There's people on the hardcore left and hardcore right. We, we want to tell ourselves there's this exhausted majority out there that wants a different way. And so you and I and others that we respect are trying to give people that different way. It, it, I guess time will tell whether, hmm that is really attractive or people just say that they want a different way, but what they really then go listen to are the hardcore right and left. Yeah. Snark, snark travels much faster online than does care by far. Absolutely. I mean, when's the last viral tweet you saw that was encouraging or, you know, I mean, maybe you see puppy videos or something. I don't know, but yeah. Um, I got two more questions for you. Um, and the one is, you know, I I enjoyed your book. Uh, um, uh, we might hang out here for a second. I enjoyed your book. You had, um, you addressed uh, anxiousness and anxiety at one point, like deeper in the book. You talked about um, tribalism exacerbating isolation, which exacerbates anxiousness. It's one mm-hmm. of the things we'll find uh, pretty regularly online specifically Twitter and Instagram, lots of memes and conversation about depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And almost at this point, it's super sad for me. It's like the joke culture now where it's like my depression is funny. 
and maybe mm-hmm. there's a season in which like there's you know you get comfortable enough with your stuff that like you can kind of joke about it but yeah i don't know that's pretty serious stuff um but you know you tie tribalism to uh isolation which then gets tied to things like depression and anxiety i thought that was a really powerful and beautiful moment i'd love for you to talk about that for for a second um but because like that was a moment of like i really want I, I would like my people to read this book i want people to pay attention to me to check out your book um read through it um one of the one of the critiques of a teaching around tribalism from the christian standpoint like one of the, one of the one of the the obstacles folks who are outside maybe uh, Christian culture will will have when it comes to anything, any sort of teaching or addressing of, of tri- tribalism from within the Christian culture is that we are, we've been conscripted culturally into a particular political orientation. So when we had these conversations, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it was, um, I'm going to blank on his name. He's a pastor in New York. People pay a lot. Oh, Tim Keller wrote, a, wrote an article about a, a, a while ago. It was a great article. But but even in the article, he sort of like makes this even-handed critique about leftism and rightism. And the, one of the things that was pointed out, which I very much agreed with, is like, yeah, but you know, Tim, most of the people who are paying attention to you don't align with with the left. They tend to align with rightness. How important is it for Christians, for your for your tribe, for you, to recognize the not just the not just a draw towards uh, partisanship, but like the particular draw of partisanship? towards the right like it is it's not just like well people tend to be partisan christians tend to be conscripted into and suckered into right-minded republicanism at the detriment of relationship it's not how important is that particular critique it's one of the things that would keep people from reading your book because it it would because coming from a christian publisher evangelical setting well i know where they're coming from can you address that like directly? Like it's it's not just partisanship. It's very it's a pretty specific partisanship among among Christians. How problematic is that? Yeah. So 1976, I think, was the last election that evangelicals and when we talk about evangelicals. Usually, the sociologists want to say white evangelicals because um, black Christians have the same theological beliefs as white Christians, but they vote differently. Uh, which is interesting, right? It's the same theology, but a different voting pattern between black Christians and white evangelicals. But to go back to 1976, that was the last time that evangelicals, white evangelicals voted kind of almost half and half for the Democrat and the Republican. And since then, uh, what we've seen is a steady tick of 75, 80% voting for the Republican candidate and very few uh, white evangelicals voting Democratic. Now, I guess that's a problem. I mean, I, I, I'm happy to acknowledge that that's a problem. But what one thing I'm curious of, just to kind of drop a little idea and then move on, is if, if 90% of black Christians vote Democratic, is that a problem? Right. I mean, is that is that the same problem on the other side? But somehow we give a pass to that and are upset with white evangelicals. Now, I don't know. It's just something to to think about. Are we equally upset with both? Is tribalism driving us? Because both you could say are tribal, tribalistic. Or is it um, just the other people that are bothering us more than the people who are voting for who we like? So that's one thing I would say. And I've had a chance to ask some good people that question. It's interesting to get their take. Most say, yeah, it's a problem on both sides, but we don't hear as much about it. Now, I think that we have to acknowledge a few facts. One is that the uh, political parties, both of them, I think, have grown more extreme. Uh, In other words, there was more overlap between the political parties back in the mid-70s when you saw a more diverse vote. Now it's not so much. Uh, I I think the abortion issue became a huge deal that allowed a lot of uh, white evangelicals to say they were voting Republican because of the abortion issue and maybe it hid some of the other motivations, whether it's immigration or tax policy or uh, other uh, issues that drove them to the polls. I have no problem critiquing uh, the the people on the tribal right. I mean, we do it all the time. I, I'm, I'm confident that no one can speak more clearly against Christian nationalism than us. We unequivocally reject it and think it is dangerous for both the nation and the church. We have no problem skewering the sacred cows on the right. But 
if that's all you do and you don't pay equal time to those on the left and the sacred cows there and the uh, political tribalism there and the things that you think people are out of step with there, then what you're going to do is be written off. You're not going to be listened to. You're not going to be seen as a fair player. So I think what Tim Keller does, I maybe we're talking about the same article. My guess is we are. He says, look, there are four issues that the Bible yeah. is clear on that overlap in modern day politics. And it is sexual ethics, the issue of life, poverty, you know, poor and race. And he says, look, you could look at those four issues and say neither party has got all those four issues down, right? If you look at either platform, you wouldn't see that all four of those issues, again, uh, poverty, race, sexual ethic, and life, and say I, all those issues are aligned with one party kind of from God's perspective. And so I, I think if we're going to be fair, if we're going to be part of Jesus's tribe and not the tribe of the donkey or the elephant, we have to be willing to speak truth to power, hmm. kind of be that prophetic voice and let the cards fall where they may. And that's going to be saying hard things to Christians who have bought in too much on the right. But there are more and more, especially in digital online communities like the New Evangelicals and, and the liturgists and others that have built their community around the left, you know? And I, I guess what I'm going to try to do is just say what I think is right and let the chips fall where they may. And I intentionally try to be fair in critiquing both sides. Um, otherwise, I think you just get written off. Yeah, that's I totally agree. Um, last question uh, is, you know, th this is um, this the book dropped in October um, and um, with this project specifically, not just the book, but um, teaching around and teaching into and, and the critique of tribalism. What will what will success look like? Like it's it's success. I, I try. I talk to my clients all the time. Like success is a moving target. Like you, you get to to some degree decide. Like it's not like well this is success. You know, well book sales is success, you know you know uh, nah. As an author, as a pastor, as a leader. What will it look like for you 10, 15 years down the line for this effort to have succeeded? How will you measure success? I need to define this more clearly. I think it's a good question that pushes me to be uh, more precise. But right now, I can say that what I want to see is something happen inside the church where people acknowledge that Jesus is king and that we see that uh, the anxiety and the fear and the reactionary politics uh, inside the church of Jesus kind of fades. It's minimized because we have this confidence that Jesus is king and that he's ruling the world. He doesn't want to be president. That would be a big step down. He sits on an eternal throne. So he's not looking for a four-year uh, reign in, inside the presidency. They, they, he's got this under control and that he has a kingdom ethic and that our job is not to try to change the world through political involvement. Our job, our primary job is to be faithful to Jesus and this countercultural community and then to live as as exiles, to see ourselves not as trying to be in control of government, but to be as exiles within our own country, where we have this uh, attractiveness about the church, because people are seeing that we love our enemies and we care for those who uh, uh uh, are marginalized. You know, I, that's the thing about Jesus's tribe, because Jesus does have a tribe. You might think, well, I, I thought you were against tribalism. No, no. What, what I think Jesus wants us to do is be a part of his tribe, because here's what's unique about his tribe, is that everybody is welcomed in. Hmm. Everybody's welcomed in. They don't come to you and say, are you, did you vote Democrat or Republican? Oh, well, then you can't be in Jesus's tribe. Everybody is welcome, no matter your sexuality, no matter your politics, your gender, your generation, your race come. And second, in Jesus's tribe, we are taught by him to lay down our life for our enemy, for those outside the tribe, to make sacrifices. Inside tribalism, we put up big walls where we keep certain people out and we try to make our own tribe successful. But in Jesus's tribe, you you care about people outside the tribe yep. and, and you live a sacrificial life for them as a way of inviting them into the tribe. So what I want is inside the church is our loyalty to Jesus to be far greater than our loyalty to any other affiliation we have here on earth. Hmm. Because I care about our country, but 
I think that the church has this opportunity that if we can show that healing and unity, which is what our country needs right now, healing and unity come through Jesus, we, ha- we have this great opportunity to, to, to practice before the world, to show the world we have what it's looking for. But if we squander the opportunity by being just as fractured and just as tribal as those outside the church, well, then shame on us. Then we deserve whatever we get. That's good. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You're great, Justin. I love talking to you. You ask good questions. Thanks for your investment. I will let you know how uh, I'll let you know when this goes up. It could be a little while. We're doing like a, a series of uh, yep. of interviews. I took a season. I mean, part of um, part of my interest in this um, outside of like enjoying the book um, is I took a. a, a not in fear, but in self-examination, took a really long season um, to divorce myself from uh, from conversation, specifically online, with the podcast and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I was feeling out of joint with, uh, personally, with cultural conversation. I, I had this really high value for a really long time. Specifically, Facebook, um, and some on Twitter, although Twitter is a different animal, just the way it's set up, mm-hmm. um, uh, of like facilitating conversation with people and and trying to provide that broader, you know, like more of a meadow. Like let's all gather here. Um, it was a it was a value with which people came to me online and otherwise that like I would, uh, and it was it was you talked about being like the exhausted majority. It was exhausting, mm-hmm. uh, and. Um, I stopped believing. I shouldn't say it like that. I couldn't see, like I could, I, I could no longer pay attention to. I could, I couldn't sense like the, like the, the, the movement or the presence of Christ in it. I was so caught up in. I'm trying to catch people because I'm a very people person. I'm trying mm-hmm. to catch the nuances, and everything became so. This won't make the podcast necessarily. My, well, we'll see. But because everything became so, it's not just that there were lots and lots of ideas. Always comfortable with that. It was that everything became on. Everything was on fire. Mm-hmm. Like every idea is the most vital and important thing. <laughs> That's like, so true. I mean, you hear that all the time. Like this is the most important election ever. Yes. You must. It's all falling apart. And it's, and and and, and, to, and I like I know that there are things that are important to me, and I needed to get to. This is more like pastoral conversation. I can only lead up to a certain point, and there's a and then there's a there's a, there's a point at which like I am not I I can love you and I can make room but I can't lead you, uh, I, I can be in a relationship with you but I don't have much to say here because a I don't know enough about the things that you care about and also and this is like the like a massive turning point for me was like I don't actually care about the things you care about, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> and I'm not I'm not saying nope. they're and I'm not saying they're not important. The, right. I, I believe you, and I think they're probably of the utmost importance to you, but they're right. not to me. Passionate about everything you're passionate about, at least not equally passionate. Absolutely, and so like, and like the 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 odd inability that's been the tripping the tripping up point for me is because I am the the ambulance chasing deep feeler that I <laughs> that like I was raised to be. It's like, um, the, the importance uh, the importance of being comfortable with not having to care about things to the degree I'm being asked to, boy, that took a season to mm. like be okay with. That like, you know what? You have a transgender kid. Your brother's transgender. Your sister's transgender. I, I'm not telling you that transgenderism and the plight of, tra- of living trans, I'm not saying that that's not important. I get it. I totally understand. Like I, I can't, honestly can't imagine. And man, it's just not an everyday thought for me. And mm-hmm. it's not like I can't, I can't organize, I can't, or, I, I can't organize my emotional life around the plight of transgender kids because I have other stuff I'm called to. I have other stuff that actually, that actually matters to me more. Uh, it, it was, it's a trip to me how hard that was for me to settle into, to say that there are things that matter to other people that really just don't matter as much to me. What a, and so I had to divorce myself for a while from conversation publicly so that I can settle back into the things that do matter for me and then work from a place of actual wholeness in Christ and who I am 
and have the conversations. Man, it was it was an, so all that to say, like we've just been doing like monologue stuff with the podcast because uh, mm-hmm. I needed to kind of find my place in the story again so that I could have conversations. It was nuts. It sounds really wise. I mean, there, there is a, just a limited, we're, we're limited beings, we're finite creatures, and we don't have a, a, a infinite emotional capacity to care about everything. Yeah. And so we just have to own that and then invest in certain things. And we can pray for things that we aren't responsible for. Like we can be concerned about them and pray for them, or we can encourage other people to do their role, but we can't take that on. And I do think that we're bombarded with all these stories Ooh. that feel so important and sometimes sad and it just wears us down emotionally and some people depending on how you're wired how god created you you might try to take on too much one kind of person and they just get emotionally exhausted and another kind of person learns to be more hardened and cynical and puts up walls that they probably shouldn't they try should be more compassionate and that that's unfortunately probably the direction that i lean is i i just put up a wall to try to protect myself and yeah. that can yeah. be bad too uh but Yes. So, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, we could go on and on. We could have a whole other conversation <laughs> just about that. Because I think, you know, when I, I go back and just one last thing, I go back and I look at Daniel. Daniel had his family torn apart. He, he was put into a different land. The temple was destroyed. Everything is turned upside down in his life. He, he is put into a position in Babylon he didn't want to be in. And yet he's at calm. He's got yep. peace. Well, how does he have that peace? Well, yeah. just he, he he had invited God into a story. He knew God had put him there. And the first verses of Daniel says God delivered Israel into Babylon's hands. He had a community of friends that he shared things with in chapter two. Yep. He had a sense in which he said, thy will be done. His buddies told Nebuchadnezzar, you've got me. You're going to throw me in the fire. Okay, well, you can do that. But I'm not going to bow down to worship you. Yep. God's will be done here. I hope it turns out the way I want, but I can't control that. Right. You know, so there's a sense of peace they have in the midst of chaos. And that's what I'm learning. That's what I how I want to live. Yep. But but you got to invite God in the story, have your community of, of Christian buddies you share things with, and, you know, be be content with God's will over your own will. If everything has to work out for, for you to be at peace, well, good luck with that, because nothing ever works out. Yeah, that's very good. And thank you for listening to this episode of the At Sea Podcast. If you'd like to check out the book, it is available really wherever you look for books. Again, the book is called Truth Over Tribe. The author is Keith Simon. If you'd like to support this podcast, we'd love to have you on the team. Jump to patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts, and we will be there waiting for your support. Until next time.